Welcome to Brain and Levat. Uh, we are joined today by Justin Weinberg, who is the editor of Daily News and is based at uh, the University of South Carolina. Uh, Justin, would you like to start with a thought experiment? I'm actually going to start with a real-world thought experiment. It involves a lesbian couple, uh, women named Candy and Sharon, who about maybe 12 years ago or so, uh, because they themselves are deaf, were interested in having a deaf child. Since they're a lesbian couple, they needed uh, assistance with uh, reproductive uh, technology uh, and sought donor sperm. But of course you can't get uh, donor sperm from a deaf donor, or at the time you couldn't at least, uh, from sperm banks. So they sought out donor sperm from a deaf friend so as to maximize the chances of their child being deaf. And uh, there are lots of interesting questions, I think, that arise with this, uh, with this activity. Uh, I think a lot of people hear about a deaf couple trying to conceive a deaf child, and especially if they're not familiar with the deaf community, will think of the parents as harming their children. This raises interesting questions about the nature of harm, what it is to harm someone, which involves ethics and metaphysics. It involves questions about the nature of disability, the nature of disadvantage, which raise questions about what it means to have a good life and what goes into a good life. It raises questions about political philosophy regarding what kinds of regulations there ought to be on people's reproductive liberties. It raises questions in medical ethics regarding how uh, medical professionals should attempt to uh, to handle uh, both as individuals and as members of institutions, uh, uh, the production of conditions that they're often called upon to alleviate. Uh, it's a very rich example. It's a real world example. And I, the reason I mention it today is because it's almost impossible to think about this example without doing philosophy and being careful about our thoughts regarding this example is just one instance of how philosophy can be valuable to us. So what's interesting about the case is that it brings up all these different intuitions. Um, so on the one hand, there's the sense of um, what is the right thing to do? Um, what are the obligations of the parents? Do they owe any, do they owe any obligations to a being that doesn't yet exist? Um, is there anything uh, wrong with being deaf? Is it a defect or is it just being different? Um, what about the benefits of being part of a community, like being a deaf community that speaks its own language, might have its own university, uh, its own schools, uh, and weighing these values up? And values aren't the kinds of things that we can see under a microscope. Um, they're not the kinds of things that are in the domain of biologists or physicists. Um, they seem to uniquely be in the realm of, of philosophy. Um, so I, I wonder, how, how do we go about evaluating a case like this? What are the kinds of philosophical tools um, that are useful to try and determine what the right answer is or what we can learn from the case? Well, I think one of the first tools at our disposal is questions. The case raises various questions and merely enumerating what they are can be a form of clarifying our thoughts, but also a form of discovery. An example like that might prompt people to ask certain kinds of questions that they haven't 
explicitly asked themselves before and or questions that they've assumed have a certain kind of answer that they've taken an answer for granted. Uh, so when I, I've presented this example to students uh, over the years and usually initially the students believe that Candy and Sharon, the mothers in this case, have are doing something wrong by trying to have a deaf child. They think that what they've done is uh, abrogate their responsibilities as parents and are harming their child. So I respond to this by, with a philosophical tool of asking them questions about it. So we might first say, okay, well, uh, what are these obligations that a, a parent has? And uh, so we can enumerate that and then we can ask further questions. Uh, I mean, this is an old idea, goes back to Socrates and before, uh, of investigation through questioning and learning to uh, overturn the assumptions embedded in our thought through questions to find out what we might not be quite certain of there. So I think questions are the first tool. So I'm curious whether certain types of questions are insensitive. Um, so suppose you go to those deaf parents and you say to them, well, why do you think it's okay to have a deaf child on purpose? Wouldn't, wouldn't a child be better off not being deaf? That's a question and it may be seen as very offensive. In other words, it is immoral to even ask the question. And something that I've been criticized about as a philosopher and I don't, I don't know if you've had this criticism, but something I've faced is the criticism that as a philosopher, I am perceiving things in an entirely logical fashion, whatever that means. I'm using a certain part of my brain and I'm out of touch with the emotions of the person who I'm asking the question of. How do you feel about the moral obligations of the questioner? I don't think morality goes away. In, I don't think that's the way it operates. Uh, Morality, however you want to cash out its particular norms or even the meta-ethics of it, uh, is the kind of thing that's incumbent upon us to some degree or another in almost all contexts, right? And what I mean by that is that moral reason, we have moral reasons almost all the time uh, whenever there's something moral at stake. The strength of those reasons might vary according to context, right? So you might have a moral reason not to ask a particular kind of question, but you might have countervailing reasons that are much stronger, right? So, so I think that's that's a, a better way to think about it it's in terms of competing reasons and not whether there's morality or, or not. Because after all, right, one of the central uh, topics in morality is the extent to which we can uh, impose burdens on others or costs on others or harms on others. And uh, I think we all agree that mental harms, emotional harms, psychological harms are in fact real harms. I think we all agree that it's possible for words to cause harm. They can cause distress in all sorts of kinds of contexts. And just as an ordinary human being navigating the world, we have to be aware of this. Uh, so does this mean you can't ask a question? Probably not but it probably speaks a lot towards the kind of preparatory work you need to do in order to ask that question appropriately. Uh, it speaks to the wording, it speaks to the, the additional context that you're gonna provide as a questioner. And this is just part of being, I think, a decent human being. So to take your question, for example, uh, 
we ask about this question, you know, what's, uh, you know, aren't you harming your child by making your child deaf? And indeed that question seems to presuppose that it's bad to be deaf. And on some views that is taken as a step in an argument towards saying that deaf people are valued less and it can be seen as a demeaning kind of question. So that, that speaks to how we have to, how we should frame this kind of question. Uh, I think it's, it's quite clear that, uh, and this is I think true even um, from the point of view of advocates of the disabled that society as a whole is unsettled in its view about disability. And it's quite reasonable for questions to come up about uh, making people who have certain disabilities. Even the very nature of disability, you know, deafness itself is understood as a disability, but for the purposes of some uh, certain laws and policies, and, and it's also not understood as a disability uh, from a cultural point of view. So there's even some mixing going on there of perspectives. So when it's something like this, I think there, there, it's a legitimate question to ask, but it does speak to the need for sensitivity in asking it and contextualizing it in a way that um, doesn't insult uh, people. So it seems to me that where you ask the question or where you apply philosophy matters. So if uh, your best friend's father dies and as he's sort of sobbing over the coffin, you say, I wonder what happens to you after you die. And then you engage in a series of speculations about, you know, whether his father is going to be burning in hell or cease to exist. You know, you might think that's the wrong moment to be, you know, philosophizing. It's the wrong time to ask that person those questions, given where they're at. But those might be very good questions to ask in a university setting and that you might want to have much more freedom to kind of ask these unsettling difficult questions in a classroom environment where really what we're doing is saying we're taking all the emotion out of it um, and our requirements for let's say sensitivity are lowered because we're trying to get to truth and we're trying to solve a problem um, one of the one of the interesting methods um, that may be used in this is We've, you've given us a real world case and we might want to start making tweaks to that case to see where our intuitions go, given that they're going to be a bit mixed. And so we might ask a couple of questions. The one might be to say, well, given that it's a lesbian couple, what if their preference was to have a, a girl? They say we, we want to sex select. So uh, we're going to get a bunch of zygotes and any of them that come out as boys, we're going to selectively abort. Uh, or we want to have a lesbian girl. So we, we're going to pick um, donors that are gay because we think that there is some genetic role that is played with regards to uh, sexual orientation, and we're going to select for this. Or um, we want a particular race of, of, of child um, or a particular intelligence or athletic ability. Um, and then we might start to think about what are the things that are inherently um, bad for you as a child. So imagine they said, we want a child who's going to be born with uh, no arms and no legs, because we think that would be quite unique. And we like the idea of having a unique child. We might start to say, well, that really pushes our intuitions about the kinds of things you can do to a being that you bring into existence. Uh, it's inherently bad for it to be born like that. On race, we might say, well, it, there's nothing inherently good or bad about a particular race, but you might live in a racist society. And so other people might treat their child very badly. And that may be a reason to pick the kind of race of kid that you have. Um, so 
it seems like one of the beautiful things about philosophy is we can run these cases without having to run them in reality. Um, we don't need real life examples to sort of uh, test things. We can do this armchair hypothesizing to work out, well, what's the right thing to do? And we engage in this balancing act, this reflective equilibrium of uh, our intuitions on the one hand, which we develop through a variety of cases and our theory on the other. Mark's giving you all the easy cases, all, all the all the easy questions to answer. Um, well, I'm, I'm not sure that they're easy. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's my point. Uh, you know that they're not, and yeah. and I mean it really speaks to. As Mark was asking the questions, I was cringing here and there and thinking, "Oh gosh, is that beyond the pale of what's moral to ask?" And you know, so so it does feel like we have to continually straddle this line. Yeah, if I may, just uh, I'll, I'll speak to the the matter of hypothetical cases in a second. But uh, your your lines of questioning were interesting because some of them were actually brought up by the mothers in that particular case. So uh, we, when we talk about deafness, and I ask my students who about what might be bad about being deaf, and this is a question that comes up uh, when we talk about this, and they list various things that. Usually, the number one answer is communication. That's the, the huge, the huge chunk of it, right? And what, what I point out to them, and this is, is the degree to which then the their, in their view, the badness of being deaf is the product of a social choice. Because after all, we could teach sign language to everyone from kindergarten on up, or preschool. I mean, lots of people teach sign language to their infants now as an easy form of communication. You know, maybe in 10 years, we could revamp the whole education system uh, over the course of that time and, and just make sign language part of the ordinary curriculum. And this would eliminate one of the things that these students think is one of the worst things about being deaf, right? So the social production of disability here comes up. And then we can ask about the race question because Candy and Sharon, the, the mothers in this case, they say, well, would you tell a, a black couple not to have a black child? in our society, you know, given that our society is racist in various ways, would, you know, and the child is gonna face certain disadvantages, would you tell the black couple not to have a black child? And they said, no, right? Because those, the badness of being black, if there is any in the society is owed to the racism in society. And that's the nature of the disadvantages you're gonna find. Um, and a huge amount of the badness of being deaf, if there is that thing, is owed to again, a choice that society is making, the ableism in society, right? Or it's failure to teach sign language. So they make use of the race question as a way of defending uh, their choice and say, look, don't tell us not to have a deaf baby, rather make society more friendly to deaf people, right? So it's an interesting move. But to go to the hypothetical cases, right? I'm a huge fan of thought experiments. Uh, and I agree that uh, they, have, they have many virtues. Right, like, uh, like in high school science classes where you describe cases, and again, we're going to get rid of friction for now, or gravity, and we're going to ignore these things, and we're going to simplify so as to understand one principle or element here, and so we're going to isolate relevant variables, and we can do that more cleanly in um, in a thought experiment. We can also easily imagine various types of cases that raise new problems, and we can talk about hypothetical cases often in a ways that don't. Uh, lead to um, offending people's real world sensibilities. So it might give us a bit of, of freedom in that regard. So I, I, I'm a big fan of the trolley problem and it comes up in a, in a couple of my ethics classes. It gets a bad rap, I think in part because uh, people have, don't understand its 
how you're supposed to set it up and, and what it actually does as a thought experiment. And, and I also think that people under, are under the mistaken view that if you're a fan of something like the trolley problem, then the way you make use of it is to figure out what we, you know, how we, how our judgments would work in those cases, and then just apply those judgments to everyday life. But like, just as you wouldn't say, I don't know, build a rocket based on the principles you learned of, you know, in a physics, high school physics class when you said, okay, let's get rid of friction, right? That, that rocket would be a disaster. <laughs> Likewise, right? You don't just take whatever we learned from thought experiments and do that in the real world. There's a process of reintroducing the various complications of the real world when we're learning the lessons of thought experiments. So um, anyway, I'm a big fan of, uh, of hypotheticals. We're very glad you are because here at Brain in a Vat, every episode starts with a thought experiment. Uh, by the way, our first episode ever was on the trolley problem um, and specifically applying it to the issue of lockdowns. Um, looking, We recorded back in March last year, just as lockdowns were being implemented. And we asked the question whether the trolley problem can shed some light on whether one should lock down or not. And Mark and I then wrote a book uh, based on debates around the trolley problem and lockdowns, and we took opposing positions on it. Uh, so it's a very useful tool. Um, and again, it came up recently in another discussion on Nietzsche. Um, so yeah, it's it's a very useful tool. So um, one criticism, I mean, you've already highlighted one criticism of trolley problems. Well, not trolley problems, but you know, thought experiments generally, um, is that people say, well, you can't just apply that to real life, right? You can't just take the trolley problem and put it into real life. Although in The Good Place, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the series The Good Place, I think they have a, an, actual trolley, an actual trolley problem, yeah. visceral trolley problem, yeah. Um, they, have, they, have, they have half of it, right? They, they, yeah, they have they half have of it, it. yeah. yeah. So, so uh, one of the criticisms, one of the other criticisms of, of, um, of thought experiments is that they are thought experiments, and so they are never perfectly applicable to everyday life, and our intuitions have been, it's sort of like conducting an experiment within a, within a clean room, right? Um, that clean room may provide some insights, um, depending on what the experiment is inside it, but it's not going to perfectly replicate or even come close to replicating um, all the variables of the outside world, which are so complicated and influence our intuitions. I'll give you an example. So you know that the, 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 the trolley problem um, has been asked to people who are bilingual, and people who are asked um, the trolley problem in their primary language um, often give a different answer to um, if they're asked it in their secondary language. Now, now what does that tell us? You know, it, 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 that kind of really, you know, for philosophers, analytic philosophers who love trolley problems, who love thought experiments, we think that there is an intuition that is reasonable. Um, and it becomes much more complicated once we, you know, start complicating and muddying the waters with cultural aspects and uh, the trolley problem has been asked to people in their left ear or their right ear, and they make they they give different answers. Um, not the very same person, but groups of people asked in the right and left ear. So, so when people start to view uh, view these results um, by what are called experimental philosophers, uh, people start to worry about the legitimacy of thought experiments, and then about the legitimacy of philosophy generally, because the criticism is we're abstracting too much. Um, and this comes out in philosophy of science, for example. So philosophy of science, you know, is about abstracting away from the particular findings of science, although philosophers should be aware of the main ones, I assume, um, 
but then, but the, but then, you know, uh, trying to come up with abstract principles for how science is done. And often scientists will look at those principles and say, you know, these people have no conception of what we do. Um, and, and I wonder if that criticism is not the problem that a lot of philosophers face, not just within philosophy of science, but, you know, ethics and, and other, other domains. Okay, so I do think that those findings about the thought experiments that you rehearsed earlier about uh, right ear versus left ear or primary language versus secondary language are, are, are very interesting. I mean, I've heard of some of these before, or not those, but uh, order bias, for example, people giving different answers based on the order in which the thought experiments are presented to them. So one question has to do with like, what do we think these thought experiments are going to, to actually generate for us? And the, uh, the answer to that might be based on a background view of what you think philosophy in general can, is good at doing. So my view about this is that philosophy is much better at questions than it is at answers. Now, of course, to some extent, any answer can be reformulated as a question and vice versa, like we can do that, but I think there's enough of an ordinary sense of this distinction to, to, to work with here. Uh, so that, that is to say, so if you look at the history of philosophy over time, or if you look at say the results of surveys of philosophers like the Phil Papers surveys, you will see a wide array of disagreement over positions and answers regarding various philosophical questions. What you see less of is disagreement over that's an interesting philosophical question, or that's a philosophical question that's worth thinking about. Right? Uh, so if we, in fact, so one, one of the ways in which I think philosophy is, is quite valuable is that it, it produces questions. Uh, and these are in a way markers for what we're uncertain about or what we're unknown. And in this way, philosophy is this project of mapping what we don't know and like the production of any other kind of map, it's a form of knowledge production, right? Uh, so I, I think the, you know, that philosophy is really good at, at the questions. So when thought experiments are put to, for the, towards the purpose of generating an, an answer to a question. So if you take the bystander version of the you know, part of the trolley problem where, okay, this trolley is going down the tracks, you're standing by, you can pull the lever to save the five, but you'll kill the one. What should you do, right? If the point of, uh, of presenting that is to get what you should do out of that, like an answer along those lines, well, I'm not so sure that that, that by itself is all that valuable and that we should put that much stock in the answer we come to that. What's interesting to me about the trolley problem is that it points out that there are certain cases in which we say one kind of thing usually, and there are, we can make other kinds of cases that have lots of surface level similarities, maybe even morally relevant similarities, but come to a different judgment, right? So in, in a way, like the, you know, it's, it's its own version of, this, of the problem, right? You say in one ear, it's one answer, another ear, a different answer. Well, here's you know, two cases, they seem morally identical, but they're very just slightly different. You get one answer here, one answer there. And then, so now we're faced with this problem, this question, why do we disagree about what we're supposed to be doing in these cases? And that's a question that, I think we're going to, and that, that's what's valuable to me about the trolley problem is that it points to this question that we don't know quite how to balance these competing concerns in ethics here, you know, for that example. 
now it's true that coming to that conclusion that there's a question there depends on enough people giving certain kinds of answers to these kinds of problems and having intuitions. Uh, but the fact that some of those answers are produced through seemingly arbitrary causes, it would be something to learn, right? It's actually a finding that we can make use of in our investigation as to why we disagree. Maybe it's arbitrary all the way down, right? And that would be something that would be something to learn. Some people think that, you know, the fact that you're pulling a switch or pushing someone off a bridge is arbitrary, uh, right? So is it? Anyway, I guess the, the point is that um, I agree that there's lots of irrelevant factors that can go into the, a, uh, an answer to a philosophical question uh, or a thought experiment question and bringing together the ways in which those various answers influenced by these various factors might be inconsistent or not fit together well or what they might tell us about other problems is, is, of interest, is the real interest there, not what are we gonna do, uh, what, what ought we to do in this case. I think you're right to point out that philosophy has a rich history of asking difficult questions. Um, I think it does generate a lot of answers, but those answers seem different to the kinds of answers produced by other fields. So for example, if you ask an historian, when did World War I start? You are going to get a particular answer and it is a correct answer. There is only one answer that you could have the particular day when X country signed you know, a war with another country. Maybe you have some ambiguity with some things, there'll be a range estimate. If we ask how many ping pong balls can we put into a classroom, you know, there's an outcome that you can get and there's some fact of the matter. But in philosophy, when we're talking about value, it seems that what we're going to have are a variety of answers that are produced and it depends on some underlying framework. So, you know, when you, when you ask about what your obligations are in a certain sense, it depends whether you think the moral value is to do that which is virtuous, um, to do that which upholds rights, to do that which maximizes pleasure, um, to do that which, you know, which upholds agreements, and they might generate totally different answers. Um, so in that sense, what we have is a series of answers sitting concurrently, and that's just in the field of ethics. I mean, we might very well have similar parallel answers in metaphysics or political philosophy uh, or a range of subdisciplines within philosophy. And I imagine that that's frustrating for people. Is there any way in which we can resolve those disagreements? Is there some principled way to say, well, these guys are more right or on a better track, you know, these kinds of answers are worse answers, or this is the definitive answer? Okay, so that's a, that's a great question. I do want to hang a few uh, question marks on some of the comparisons you made to other disciplines there, because um, I think history is full of value judgments and the kinds of projects that historians undertake about you know, what we're drawing attention to as important or significant in an era or what we're drawing attention to as a certain kind of cause uh, or a certain kind of development, these are, are rife with value judgments about uh, uh, that, that infuse historical research. Uh, and and you know, one of the wonderful advances in philosophy of science over the last 50 or so years has been pointing out the extent to which values are a part of scientific practice and not just epistemic values. Uh, so, so I, so part of me wants to say philosophy isn't unique in embedding questions about value. Almost every discipline I can think of does that to some extent. Uh, we, we, we do take it up fairly explicitly, um, but I do think that actually, what, as a side note, part of the value of philosophy 
especially philosophy of the sciences and philosophy of the social sciences, has been to problematize these disciplines for their practitioners, to, for, to, to get them to understand that what they're doing is not this purely objective project, that there are lots of choices and some choices that aren't even guided by the norms of the science that they're engaged in that are affecting what they do. Uh, and it's, it's super important for, for those sciences. Anyway, um, so again, so, so just as I said, then part of the value of philosophy is how it improves some of these other disciplines. But how do we resolve these, these kinds of, is there a way to resolve these kinds of questions? I like the uh, answer that is given by Daniel Stoljar, uh, who's an Australian philosopher. I don't know if you're familiar uh, with his work, but he distinguishes between different types of philosophical questions. He takes up explicitly, does philosophy make progress? Because after all, we've had philosophical questions with us for, for eons, and we'll look like the same questions over and over again. If we were making progress, we wouldn't be asking the same kinds of questions over and over again. Um, he wants to defend a version of philosophical progress. So how does he do it? He distinguishes between different types of questions. So there's certain questions, philosophical questions, that do get answered, right? For example, does this argument contain a fallacy? Right? Is it affirming you know, the consequence or something like that, right? Is it... Um, is begging the question, right? We can answer philosophical questions all the time, right? Uh, these are small philosophical questions. And usually when we talk about philosophical questions that have been with us forever, you know, unanswered, we're not talking about these. But notice then we're just taking a whole lot of minor philosophical achievements off the table and not counting them as questions that we've answered. Okay, fine. We won't do that. Um, what about when, on the other end, like these big questions, like how does the mind and body interact, or what's the, you know, what's the right or wrong way to act? These are, these are huge, big questions. And it's true that these questions, what kind of life should I live? How does the mind interact with the body? Have been with us for, for a really long time. But it would be a mistake, he thinks, to infer from the persistence of these questions that philosophy isn't making progress with any kinds of answers conclusions, because these are, are less questions than they are topic-defining statements, right? By way of analogy, right, the medical sciences, right, are, take up the question of like, how does the body work, right? Turns out we're still asking this question, how does the body work? Should we infer on the basis of this question still being with us after thousands of years that medicine's not made any progress? That would be, you know, ridiculous, right? Uh, so likewise, the fact that the mind-body problem or the nature of ethics is a problem that's still with us, it does not tell us that itself that progress hasn't been made there. And one of the nice things about his book is he goes through some examples to show how, as it turns out, some of those middle-level questions, right? They're not the tiny ones, right? But they're not the big topic-defining ones. They're sort of large questions, uh, have changed over time as we've learned that they aren't well-formed or that the presuppositions that they uh, embed are, are indefensible, we've replaced them over with better versions of questions over time. Now, that's a lot of prefatory work, right? Uh, for your question about like, how do we resolve disputes in ethics? And I, I think it's, a, it's very challenging uh, to figure out whether that can happen. Um, I think that the task of philosophy is less in resolving the, these problems than it is in and again, just to return to the map analogy, mapping them out. So if each you know, dot on a map or, or landmass represents a certain kind of topic or, or, and 
each town is like kind of question, like the various roads are like the implications of various answers, right? So here's a possible answer to this question. And if you're gonna take this road, right, here's where it's gonna lead. It's gonna to lead to this, this, and this, and these set of questions, right? Oh, and or you can go this way, right? And if you do that, then there's these kinds of questions, right? And again, we come up with a map of necessity and possibility, basically, uh, for the various answers. Uh, how do we how do we answer these questions? I think that there's probably some work that philosophy can do to knock out the plausibility of some answers over others. Um, but I think another way that some of these questions get answered is that once we've hammered out the nature of the problem by asking all these questions about it, then someone else takes it over, right? And this is the idea of uh, disciplinary speciation, where what philosophy makes progress by, in a way the same way a, a rocket does, like, like it gets higher and it, it sends off its, its boosters, right? And, but basically, yeah, so physics takes over that question or psychology takes over that question or economics takes over that question, biology, right? Uh, we're no longer saying, you know, we have water, fire, air, you know, earth has answers to philosophical questions, right? But I think, I think philosophical questions are difficult and challenging to answer, but that doesn't mean that, uh, they're not, that we're not making progress, doesn't mean that we're not uh, doing something valuable by, by raising them. I just wanted to yeah. push you on that final sentence that you, that you uttered. So you said, doesn't mean philosophy doesn't have value. So a lot of people, when they want to work out what it means for something to have value, first thing they think of is, does it have utility? Um, and, and so one of the criticisms leveled at philosophers is often that philosophy is useless. It has no utility. Um, and one of the reasons they think that is because you can go through your entire lifetime um, never asking these questions, and you might live a qualitatively identical life. Um, and so they might ask, it, if it has no impact on your life, um, why I think it has value? So that's one question. And given that we, we're talking about questions, I'm going to ask a second. Um, the, the second is related, which is, are these questions unanswerable in principle? So you have said that on certain points, we have made progress. You know, for example, you mentioned the mind-body problem. I've looked at answers to the mind-body problem that were dismissed in the 60s and the 70s, for example, a Cartesian dualism, the view that the mind and the body are entirely separate and distinct substances that was sort of dismissed. And then you get the Jaguan Kims of the world who arise and say, no, I have a new form of, you know, Cartesian dualism that I want to punt. It's not the mainstream view anymore, but it's, you know, it has a, it has a smattering of support. Um, so, you know, a, a philosopher or non-philosopher who looks at that uh, might say, well, um, maybe you're making progress in the sense that, you know, there's these journal articles being written back and forth and there's objections and responses being raised, but there's no progress on the bigger issue, which is, can we rule out Cartesian dualism? Um, is that even answerable in principle? And if it's not, then how useful can philosophy be? Okay, these are great big questions. Uh, you asked the, the, this first question about maybe doing philosophy doesn't make one's life better. And you imagined two qualitatively identical lives, one in which a person is doing philosophy and one in which they're not. I suppose by qualitatively identical, you mean, but just like contains the same amount of pleasure. I mean, because they would obviously be qualitatively different in the sense that one is 
doing philosophy. Right? Yeah, one of one of one of them is asking these questions in their heads, whereas the other mm-hmm. one's not. Uh, but they both are going to do to do an ordinary day job every day. Both are chopping wood. Both are feeding their children at night. Bringing they earn the same amount of money. Uh, they mm-hmm. have it seems very similar lives from the outside. Perhaps their their mental mm-hmm. space will be different, but from the outside, it looks like you know they're living the same life. Okay, so uh, I guess. One thing I'd say is uh, I'm a pluralist about value. I think there are lots of different ways that people might live good lives. And a lot of that, um, and, and there's a lot of variability, and I think we're learning more and more about that as time goes on. So, if it's the case that someone can have a perfectly good life without doing any philosophy, if you're a pluralist about value like I am, that's not enough to show that there isn't value in doing philosophy, right? There might be perfectly other good ways about doing philosophy. It doesn't have to always be the kind of thing that makes someone's life better, right? There might be, for various people, other ways of life that don't involve philosophy that give them a better life. And so I think that's that's totally fine. So I think that a lot of what, uh, if you want to see like how what's the use of philosophy, you asked. Um, I think that a lot of you know here's here's one thing. A lot of the cultural products I enjoy and I don't think I enjoy them simply because I am a philosopher, uh, are clearly influenced by philosophy. Right? So, for example, uh, one of my favorite television shows of recent years is Westworld. Have you watched it? Right? So it's an extraordinarily philosophically rich show. Uh, and it, I think it was very much clearly informed, uh, especially in the first season, with ideas regarding philosophy of mind. Uh, and, and I think that... Um, so its production itself, I think, was influenced by philosophy, but also my ability to extract pleasure from it is also influenced by my familiarity with philosophical questions, my my appreciation of that. So, and, and of course, that's just a television show. Plenty of art, music, film, literature over the years has been something that has been inspired by, or motivated by, and enriched by philosophy. So to the extent to which you think cultural products have made people's lives better and, and philosophical ones can, can sometimes be good, then, then that's one way in which philosophy has been valuable. Uh, I also think that there's a sense in which uh, people like to take responsibility for their thoughts or, they, or that or appreciate at least the idea of taking responsibility for their, for their thoughts in the sense of not just mindlessly accepting what goes on around them. Uh, I guess this would be a way of appreciating individuality. And you're certainly not gonna get individuality by just doing what everyone else says. You might not be guaranteed individuality by thinking things through on your own, but it's, it's certainly more likely to get in that general direction. And philosophy gives people the, the tools and the exposure uh, to investigate their thoughts, to figure out whether they're well-founded found, and to see whether they can, they can defend them and justify them, whether they have, reasons, even if they don't have reasons all the way down, right? That they have some reasons for thinking what they do. Uh, most of us want to be thought of as a thoughtful person and want that to be a true thought about us, right? So, you know, yeah, philosophy is one way of, of being a thoughtful person. So if you think thoughtfulness makes your life better, then that's another thing in which, uh, a way in which philosophy can help. I mean, I often, I often, um, not often, but occasionally I, I'll get a student who says the following, I didn't even know we could ask that. For some people, right, depending on the kinds of lives they've had, can open up intellectual and imaginative 
doors for them that they did not know existed. That they, they looked through like certain things just had to be the case or they took for granted, didn't even know you could hang a question mark on them. And, and philosophy can, can do that and change, change people's lives in important ways. Uh, so yeah, I think these are all sorts of ways in which philosophy can be of, of personal value to people. Um, now, uh, as for the, the other, your other question about its unanswerability, unanswerability of philosophy, do I think philosophical questions are in principle unanswerable? No, as I said before, I think lots of philosophical questions are answerable. Some of them might be kind of small scale, right? Um, I think that we can show whether certain arguments that are the bases of various theories work or don't work, and that's a kind of philosophical progress, just in the same way that some theory of virology can have traction for a while and then be shown not to account for some kind of evidence and be put on the shelf, and then something sort of similar to it might pop up you know, 10 years later. I don't know if this actually happens, but it doesn't seem implausible to me that, oh, it turns out if we tweak this theory in a certain way, it can deal with this, and we didn't know that at the time, right? And so, yeah, so I, I don't think that the repetition of types of theories is enough of it evidence to suggest that we're not making progress. After all, if you know, a later version of the mind-body problem isn't susceptible to the same problems that an earlier version is, then at least in the domain of, of those types of theories, we've made some kind of progress, right? There's no longer this objection you can raise against it. All right, that's one thing. But again, right, and this goes back to something earlier I've said, I do think that the way, the real kind of value that philosophy brings to the table is the identification and mapping of what it is we don't know. Like we want, we want, certainly we want answers to, to various questions. We want to learn things about the universe, about our lives, about the world, about our self-understanding. But one thing we need to know to do that, some of the times at least, is what we don't know. And we're not often really good at figuring out what it is we don't know. But philosophy is really good at that. Philosophy is so good at figuring out what it is we don't know. Because philosophers will take an ordinary question like, uh, is morality real or not? Right? And we'll show that to properly answer that question, there's about a hundred other questions of much more specific that no ordinary person would ever have thought to ask. Semantic properties or non-natural properties, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like all, you know, all these things like later on down the road, right? Um, that, that, that we can talk about the possibility of you know, what kinds of, if moral facts are facts in virtue of what are they facts, right? Uh, you know, what kinds of, anyway, so now we have a map to this territory of the reality of morality that we didn't have before, right? How can that not be a form of intellectual achievement, a form of knowledge production, right? That's a great answer. And um, by the way, I'm playing the role of the skeptic here, but I am a philosopher and I co-host the show with Mark. So I strongly believe in the value of philosophy. Um, and I think your answers are great answers. Thanks. So thus far, we've sort of assumed that we're talking about a particular branch of philosophy, namely analytic philosophy. And I wonder if continental philosophy should be spoken about in the same way. Um, often, I think the public view on on philosophy is the continental type. If you go to a bookstore, you're often going to see uh, books by Foucault and Derrida, the kind of house brand name philosophers that, you know, uh, academic analytic philosophers often don't take very seriously, partly because they aren't doing the virtuous things that you talk about, like providing clarity and mapping knowledge. Instead, what they're doing is throwing up dust, creating obfuscation, it does seem that there are some people who are engaged in a project of trying to say, well, maybe some of those continental guys, um, even though they write in this obfuscatory style, 
they might have been asking some interesting questions. Um, and maybe there's a way to reconstitute what they've done in a way that can be understood by analytics. So you have you have movements to sort of try and take the value of continental work, often asking questions around, let's say, the meaning of life or something like that. You've got philosophers like David Benatar and Thad Metz saying, well, let's see if we can make sense of this in analytic fashion. Have I characterized the distinction between the two kind of camps fairly? Um, do you think that continental philosophy has got a greater role to play? Or do you think we shouldn't even be calling it philosophy at all? I I was trained largely as a graduate student in the analytic tradition, though my undergraduate experience was at a very continental department. Uh, so, uh, and, 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 and Georgetown, where I went as a grad student, does have a mix of, of continental and analytic philosophers there. Uh, so, uh, but, but I'm, I'm definitely, if you ask like what my, what my philosophy style is um, more in the analytic camp. Uh, but I, I don't think that, uh, I'm not too convinced by this idea that all of the virtues lie with the analytic style and that what we get largely from continental philosophers is obfuscation and things like that. We, we, there's certainly some of that there, and, but there's also a certain lack of clarity of a different kind sometimes in analytic philosophy when it comes to needless technicalities or the use of jargon uh, or um, you know, the, the, the pursuit of questions that arise only at the, at the tail end of some curly Baroque curly cue of some philosophical debate that it really has no bearing on anything. And so it's all of this highly technical work about something that isn't going to make a difference one way or another. And I think that's needless, needless complications too. All right. Um, but I guess the main thing I'd like to say about this is that uh, it would seem strange to me that uh, or maybe not strange, but awfully lucky if, right, if you look at all of human history from when it started to now, and then maybe into the future, that us over the last 80 years, 90 years have happened upon the best way to do philosophy. Somehow, luckily for us, we happen to be alive right now during this brief period of time when philosophy has taken this, uh, this, style uh, because I mean, analytic philosophy is an invention of the 20th century uh, and while it's continuous in various ways with earlier philosophical traditions so too in some ways are many continental figures so uh, I, I would as a general matter I'm hesitant to sort of hold us up as some model that everyone needs to follow in order to be doing philosophy I think that's that would be silly uh, I also am not sure that there aren't other ways to do philosophies. Now, I tell a, a, a story about the value of philosophy that, as you correctly note, points about, you know, relies on clarifying questions and providing definitions and talking about what's possible and what's necessary and things like that. And those are very much uh, analytic style tools. But I wouldn't be surprised if someone who was more invested in the continental framework couldn't themselves produce a similar kind of story about the value of continental philosophy. Um, maybe map isn't the kind of analogy that they would help themselves to, but maybe the kind of mess you make when you destroy something or dig something up, right? And you know, if, if we wanna stick with a kind of what they would probably assume is an insulting uh, analogy of a kind of messiness that you ascribed to the continental philosophy. Uh, so I, th I think, or, or maybe even like the idiosyncratic mindsets that seem to inhabit some continental philosophers, which are very difficult to get at from the outside, but if you've grown up in it, probably are more familiar, 
like might be defended on straightforward like, million grounds about, look, this is an experiment in philosophy, right? And we want to let a thousand flowers bloom because after all, this way of thinking about the matter or problem might develop interesting things that we in our more regimented way are not going to come to. Uh, so there's that. And I'm also you know, a fan of various analyses of this distinction in the first place that, that speak to it being largely a sociological divide rather than much of a substantive one. Uh, Bill Blattner has a nice essay uh, about, about this and how a lot of how continental analytic philosophy split, how that split came to have such prominence is you know, largely a sociological question, a historical accident, who was reading what, who was citing what at a certain time, and it just got calcified over time. Um, and you can find that online, it's, it's quite good. Well, Justin, I want to say thank you for an absolutely fabulous conversation. Um, it is something I think unique about philosophy in that we're able to have a meta discussion about the methods that we use uh, and that we can be rigorous and we can sort of fine tune our own mechanisms. Um, and I think you've been uh, given us a really good tour of how to go about that process. Well, thanks. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. A lot of fun.